finding classified documents in Joe's possession has become a very odd yet very concerning game of Where's Waldo? The show starts now. Well, folks, another batch of classified documents has been found in Joe's possession, this time in a garage-adjacent room in his Delaware home. So that brings the count to this so far. Documents found in a closet at the Penn-Biden Center. They actually found those just days before the midterm elections, though it took over two months to report it. Convenient. Then in December, they found some more documents in the garage of Biden's private home in Wilmington, Delaware. But don't worry, they were next to his prized Corvette, so basically Fort Knox, folks. But wait, there's more. Last week, his personal attorneys found more classified material at his home. On Thursday of last week, the dumbest woman to ever stand behind anything told us the search was complete. It wasn't. On Saturday, the White House lawyer announced he discovered five more pages of classified documents at Biden's Wilmington home. None of this material was found via FBI raid, mind you. That's only reserved for political enemies of the deep state. So don't expect a raid of Jill's underwear drawer anytime soon. But don't worry. Biden and team are fully cooperating, and he is still mystified as to how those documents got there and what's in them. The dementia card works for Joe, but it doesn't work for KJP, who has had a hell of a time explaining all of this. I mean, it's just painful to watch. And you have said repeatedly, the president has said he takes classified documents very seriously. Does he think the garage is an appropriate place to store classified I, material? He was surprised that the records were there. Documents were found on December 20th in his garage in Wilmington. Why was it not immediately addressed? Is the White House being transparent about that? We have been transparent here. So can you just clear this up? I would refer you back to the statement. I don't have anything more to say. And then on these documents, how could anyone be that irresponsible? Isn't that what this president says about mishandling classified documents? The president spoke to this personally. He spoke to this personally. He, again, he believes that uh, classified documents and information should be taken seriously. He takes them seriously. Well, that was insightful. But here's what I want to know. If the first batch was found in early November at the Penn Biden Center, yes, before the midterms, and just two months after Mar-a-Lago was raided and Trump was publicly shamed, why did it take so long to report on it? Plus, even after the existence of the first batch was revealed last week, why was there no mention of the second batch that was found in December in Delaware? And why were Biden's personal lawyers conducting the searches of his homes? Playing dumb or even being dumb is not full cooperation, Joe and friends. It's just not. And I'm going to give you my theory later in Final Thoughts. But first, I'm digging deeper into this whole charade with Town Hall senior writer Julia Rosas. That's next. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie, your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer with over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros. Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, 
Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie to get all their jobs done well. We have asked for an assessment uh, in the intelligence community of the Mar-a-Lago documents. Uh, I think we ought to get that same assessment of the documents uh, found in the, uh, in the uh, think tank as well as the home of President Biden. Uh, I'd like to know what these documents were. I'd like to know what the IC's assessment is, whether there was any risk of exposure and what the harm would be and whether any mitigation needs to be done. I mean, pretty typical of the mainstream media to get expert guidance on classified Joe from the congressman who spent years peddling a false Russiagate narrative, even when he knew it was a load of BS. But what else do you really expect from ABC News? Joining me now with his take on that and so much more is townhall.com senior writer Julio Rosas. Julio, I'm glad to have you with me. I want to start with all this classified Joe mumbo jumbo. Over the weekend, we find another batch and a whole lot more information is coming out. What is your top line thoughts? How do you think they discovered all this classified information? And why do you think it took so long to get the news out? Well, for for quick background, I actually held a uh, security clearance when my time in the Marine Corps Reserves, we were, uh, my job required to handle uh, classified information. And so when we were going through training, we were taught the different ways to handle it and what to do and what not to do. And obviously what President Biden has done and apparently has been doing for a long time is he's violated very basic rules for keeping and storing classified documentation. And of course, you know, when we talk about with what's happened with Trump, the main difference is that he was vice president and not president. There's different authorities that come with that. But in terms of, you know, why they've all of a sudden kind of found this or, you know, have come out with the news for this after it's been known for a while. I mean, it's obviously pretty clear that they wanted to keep it under wraps uh, during the midterms. Um, do I think it would have made much of a difference? Maybe, maybe not. I, I, I mean, obviously, the, the the results were not what were Republicans were hoping for, but it, it would just have definitely been another uh, uh, issue that is on a mountain of issues that have come from from the Biden administration. So I really think that you know, this this attempt to downplay uh, what has been happening uh, with how he handled uh, the, this type of documentation is, of course, expected from the mainstream media. But it, people need to really understand that, uh, sure, you know, the intent is whether the intent's there or not, he did uh, break all these rules. So I have to ask you, you once had a security clearance. If you had placed classified documents next to your sports car in your garage, would you be in jail right now, Julio? I would definitely be in the brig and be charged under the UCMJ and all that host of other stuff. I mean, it would not have been uh, good. Now, of course, I don't also have a, uh, a son who's addicted to drugs and also has access to, to that. So that might have been the, the key difference there. But it, it, I mean, but in all seriousness, that that's why. I mean, I remember uh, when we were going through the schoolhouse, uh, our instructors were telling us, uh, you know, similarly, uh, since this was back in 2015, uh, this uh, with the way Hillary Clinton handled classified information and how uh, if if they had done what she had did uh, or had 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 done it, it, it would not have been good. So this is just another example of how 
you know, because, oh, well, you know, a Democrat, it's, I mean, it's funny seeing the, the two side-by-sides that the mainstream media has put out with the graphics between what Trump did and what Biden has done. It's literally the, the epitome of, well, it's okay if we do it. Well, and then you brought up Hunter Biden, which I think is interesting because we're getting more information now that he was paying old Papa like 50 grand a month to stay in the house, which is also very odd. I mean, that's some pretty expensive rent for a home in Delaware. I think we're going to find more information, possibly linked to Hunter Biden. But I have a theory on all of this. I'm going to go into deeper detail later in my show. But now, as you mentioned before, it was really downplayed in November, December. But now I think they're upping the ante on the coverage of this. I think even the mainstream media that has spent so much time coddling Joe, I think they have their sights set on him and I think he's a target now because I think they want Joe out of the way. I want your quick thoughts on that before we move on. It is interesting because when you look at the the things that have really been damaging to his, his presidency is the Afghanistan withdrawal, which obviously was completely botched. Uh, but this one is also pretty, uh, pretty significant, pretty damaging because, um, again, with the attempts to explain it away, when you actually look at what was done and how long, again, how the the length that these that they've had these documents in these areas, um, it's also pretty, pretty damaging as well. So I think I think you're right in the sense that this is maybe another opportunity for people who are looking ahead in 2024 uh, as just another uh, chink in the armor that he has somehow managed weather because, you know, I cover the border crisis extensively and that hasn't hurt him as much as some of the other uh, topics that I've just uh, laid out. Yeah, because it's what Democrats choose to shine a light on that matters to people. And that's why they are now able to shine a light on it because they want to get Joe out of the way. The things that they don't shine a light on, people don't care about. Isn't it funny how that works? I'm glad you brought it up, though, because I know that you've been doing a lot of reporting on what's happening, not only at our southern border, but people often forget Florida and they forget the coastline and they forget the Keys. But right now, that area is being inundated with illegal immigrants. I know that you've been covering this what exactly is going on in the Keys and how nervous should Floridians and Americans be by the inundation that they're now starting to see in that part of the world? So I literally just got back from the Florida Keys. I was with the Florida National Guard. I was embedded with them uh, going on patrols uh, in the air. Uh, And basically, I mean, the reason why that they're there is because uh, just like with the southern border, I mean, you know, people coming from Cuba and Haiti have 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 been happening for a very long time. But just like with the southern border, under this administration, it has gotten exponentially worse. And a lot of these towns, I mean, Key West is the biggest uh, biggest city there, and it's not that big by the rest of the country standards. And so when you have 200, 300, 400 people showing up within a very short amount of time, that is going to be very taxing. On the local services, it's very taxing on uh, accommodations uh, for them because the border patrol station is definitely not set up to house that many people over a marathon. So it it, it was very interesting to see that uh, the the Biden White House saying that Governor DeSantis ordering the National Guard to help out at their request is a political stunt that put people's lives at risk when they are literally running missions to uh, detect if there are any boats in distress because uh, the Straits of Florida are not an easy thing to go through, even uh, even with regular boats. Well, and listen, I've actually had a little bit of knowledge because I'm also very close to Border Patrol that have been sounding the alarm to me on this for at least the last year and a half saying, 
we're seeing more activity in this area. Of course, everything, the spotlight has been shown on Texas and Arizona and their border crisis, but this has been increasing and increasing, and now it's finally getting some media attention because Governor DeSantis is having to deploy the National Guard and pay attention to this region. But I'll also say this. So there's a lot of Cubans coming over, and we feel for the Cuban people. My husband is Cuban. His family is all from Cuba. So we feel for these people that are fleeing oppression and they're fleeing communism. They might actually have legitimate asylum claims, but it also speaks to the bigger picture. It doesn't matter who's coming over here. We cannot absorb that many people and now they're coming in at every nook and cranny they possibly can what has border patrol as well as the national guard told you about what they think they're going to see in the coming months in that region they they think they're going to see basically uh, hopefully the 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 fruits of the national guard's labor in terms of deterrence because now uh since there's more eyes on the shores and in the waters uh there are definitely going to be a greater chances of people being interdicted before they even reach American shores. Uh, one of the most concerning things that I learned, um, a former Border Patrol agent who was stationed in the Keys, um, he told me that there are now only three agents and three supervisors permanently assigned to, to the Keys. Uh, that is a significant drop from 22 agents back in 2015, 2016. Uh, and there's multiple reasons why agents have decided to leave uh, or retire uh, um, even prior to, to this, but obviously when, just like with the Southern border, they can't patrol the shoreline because they are too busy, uh, processing, uh, a hundred people, which is totally abnormal, uh, for, for that, for that region. And so the numbers are smaller, but proportion to what the responsibilities are, it is completely, uh, overwhelming, but even, even still, I mean, in fiscal year, 2022, uh, Border Patrol encountered over 4,000 people when the norm was 1,000 people per fiscal year. So, I mean, this is definitely a concept. I mean, it's no coincidence that it's happening right now under this administration. It, people see what the Biden administration is allowing, and they're willing to take that risk within the ocean, uh, just like with the desert. So it's very tragic to see that, um, but it, it's also tragic that uh, Americans uh, in these communities are once again uh, bearing the brunt of this. Yeah, I also wonder what it's going to be like in that area. That's a vacation destination. So it's one thing when it's happening in small border towns in Arizona and Texas. It's another thing when it's happening in the Florida Keys. Luckily, they have a great governor that's going to do everything that he can. So I'm very hopeful and optimistic about their response there. Last thing I want to ask you about, because I know that you were heavily involved and embedded during the Summer of Love 2020 with those mostly peaceful riots. And in fact, you wrote a book about it. I want to make sure I get the title here. Fiery but mostly peaceful, the 2020 riots and the gaslighting of America. I love that title. I love the book. Real quick, what would my viewers read about in your book? What did you experience and what are you going to tell about? Uh, they would, the, if people were to buy the book, they were going to find out what actually happened. And I was as many places as I could be. I couldn't be in two places at once, unfortunately, but I was at uh, Minneapolis, Kenosha, uh, here in Washington, D.C. for the riots that were happening here. And it was my firsthand account, along with the firsthand account of survivors uh, who went through uh, even worse things than what I saw uh, about that. Yes, there were protests in 2020, but there were also riots. And these were riots from the BLM movement, from the Antifa movement. Uh, I spent time in Portland multiple times. And it's just it's supposed to be history, um, because as we saw and as the title <laughs> implies. I mean, that's where I literally get my title from, from that CNN Chiron from Kenosha, where they were trying to downplay rights that were 
happening there. And so uh, people are going to know the, tr the truth of, of what happened. And it's unfortunate that it has to fall to someone who works at a small conservative outlet to be one of the few people who who was out there uh, on the ground uh, and just trying to get the word out and what was what I was seeing. But that that's what happened. And even still today, uh, you know, people want to talk about January 6th, which I was also there to cover and uh, also talk about in the book. But the 2020 riots were also real and they also affected real people and it caused major damage. And we are still feeling the effects today when it comes to policing and the high crime rates that we are now currently experiencing. Uh, unfortunately, in our cities. And so, I mean, there's a direct line between today and, and what happened uh, almost three years ago now. Yeah, and January 6th was one day, and the summer of riots was an entire summer long. And in some places like Portland, it continued much, uh, much longer than that. But I thank you for documenting the history because you're right. People quickly forgot uh, about that time. And when COVID took a hiatus, by the way, we also remember that. But it's nice that we have people out there like yourself that are willing to not only embed yourself in dangerous situations, essentially what was a war zone, but also to tell about it for those that are going to conveniently forget. So I think it's fantastic. I love the title of your book. Thanks for everything that you've done and all the investigative work that you've been doing, even when it's not fun and even when it's a little dangerous. Julio, thank you so much for being with me today, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Still ahead, this former Virginia Tech soccer player refused to kneel for St. George Floyd and BLM, and she alleges her coach retaliated and punished her for it. But even after the settlement, there's still a lot of controversy surrounding this case. The brave young woman who refused to kneel for the mob, Kirsten Henning, joins me next. It all started in the summer of 2020, the summer of love, if you'll recall, when individuals, corporations, and athletic departments alike posted black squares and dropped to their knees in remembrance of St. George Floyd and the money-making domestic terror organization known as BLM. Now, many Americans, young and old, felt pressure to join this movement, and many did indeed go along to get along, bend, cave, and kneel to the woke mob. Well, not my next guest. When she refused to kneel for BLM before her Virginia Tech soccer team played UVA, she was allegedly punished by her coach, Charles Chugger Adair. Kirsten Henning alleges she was singled out, scolded, benched, and retaliated against for refusing to kneel. She could have taken it, could have folded and got on a knee, but instead she decided to file a lawsuit in defense of her First Amendment rights. Now, this lawsuit ended in a $100,000 settlement from Coach Adair, but the story doesn't end there. Now, 76 current and former members of Virginia Tech soccer have come together to put out a joint statement in support of their coach. Joining me now with the real story is that brave soccer player, the Patriot who refused to cede her ground for her or her knee to the mob, Kirsten Henning. Kirsten, thank you for being with me. And first of all, let me say thank you for sticking your neck out there for First Amendment rights and freedom. Not many your age are willing to do it, and it's a testament to you and your family that you were brave enough to do it from the get-go. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So before we get to all the latest developments, I want to go back to when this initially happened. So this was a very weird time in our country. Everybody was bowing down. Everybody was getting on a knee, posting a black square. Whether they really believed in the sentiment of BLM or, or what have you, everybody was really getting in on this. And, of course, a lot of universities, they followed suit. Some even led the charge. So your team was going to kneel in solidarity. Is that correct for George Floyd and BLM? That's correct. Um, before ACC games, they were going to read a unity statement. Um, at the time, we didn't know what it was going to say. They just told us it was going to be a moment um, of, of silence, if you will, before starting games in that 2020 season. 
Now, it's one thing if they want to read a little statement and everyone wants to join hands or, or whatever. I mean, it's woke, it's a virtue signal, but whatever. But it was the kneeling that you took issue with. Tell me why that was problematic for you. Yeah, it was problematic just because I felt as though it was very synonymous with what Colin Kaepernick was doing at the time. Um, I also didn't feel as though I needed to kneel in support of something to to support it. So I knew going into that game and, and that season really that I was not going to kneel for anything. Um, so it started at that UVA game, uh, not kneeling for that unity statement. So then after that, as your your lawsuit describes, your coach, you know, he singled you out. He, he didn't kick you off the team, but he certainly made it known that your refusal to kneel was going to have repercussions. Tell me what happened to you and tell me how the team treated you after you refused to kneel. Yeah, so really at halftime of the UVA game was when things kind of started to um, unravel. Um, and then after that, it was kind of a domino effect throughout film sessions. Um, of him targeting me and then subsequently benching me uh, basically for the next uh, two games. And then unfortunately it just got so unbearable and suffocating that I felt as though I, I, I needed to step away um, from the team. How did the rest of the team treat you? Were they kind of in on this pile on? Did they look at you a certain way? Or were there other members of the team that maybe felt similar to the way you did, but didn't have the courage to stand up for themselves like you were able to do? Yeah, I think like you touched on, um, it was definitely a time that was uh, very difficult. Um, you know, there were difficult conversations and the political climate that was created um, within athletics and, and everywhere in the country really um, was hard to be in if you were not thinking as um, similarly with the mob mentality, right? Um, I think people struggled to uh, stand up for themselves and um, stand up for what they believed in because they were scared of getting targeted and, um, you know, labeled and, and called all of these names. So um, at first when I left the team, you know, my teammates were supportive of me. You know, they reached out to me um, with messages of support and, and that they would always be there for me. And, um, uh, you know, some people have done a 180, uh, which is OK. Um, you know, I think you referenced the 76 women, which um, I think it's great that they're voicing their opinion and, and um, practicing their First Amendment right as well. Um, but I, I do think it's important to note that a lot of those people weren't there um, at that time that this happened. And um, I think it's hard to be able to put themselves in, in our shoes at that time who were there during that season um, when all of that was going on. And um, it was a tough environment to be in. Do you think that your coach and others tried to peg you as a racist simply because you wouldn't kneel for BLM in this unity statement, this charade, if you will. Is that what they wanted you to feel like to the outside world, a racist, a bigot, all of those things? Um, I can tell you that's what it felt like. Um, it was, um, you know, I, I never judge anyone on color. I never have. I was raised, um, you know, by parents who, who instilled morals and values in me. And I've never looked at someone differently because of their color. And um, it, it's unfortunate that people are so quick to throw that term around, um, you know, up until really the summer of 2020, people didn't go around calling other people racist just to do so, um, especially when it wasn't backed with anything, um, just just kneeling or not kneeling or, or what have you. So uh, it's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah, it was a whole time uh, of pressure where people were made to feel like they needed to post something. And it's something that really didn't advance anything for anyone. It was a worthless virtue signal. But if you didn't participate in it, you were looked at in a certain way. But I have to ask you, a lot of people in your position, being you know a college soccer player, would have said, hey, listen, I'm not going to do it. 
I essentially was pushed off the team because of my refusal to do it, but I'm about done anyway. It's all right. I'm not going to take legal action. That seems like a lot of work. It seems like an uphill battle. It seems expensive. Why did you decide to go for it? Yeah. So I think, um, like I said, I, I was just raised that way, um, you know, going into that season and, and when all that stuff was happening, I, I knew what I was going to do going into it. Um, I never could have planned for, you know, the repercussions of standing up for what I believed in. Um, and, you know, after all that happened and I sought out legal counsel, um, I was so blessed with incredible lawyers, um, a, an incredible support system. So um, it was a no brainer for me that I was going to fight until the end um, for, for what I believed in. And, and my hope is that I can inspire others to do that. Um, I think, like you said, people most people would do that. And most people do, do, do that. Um, they say, Oh, I don't want to go through this. And, you know, you don't want to sacrifice your reputation and, you know, all that kind of stuff, but I don't regret it. Um, one bit and I would, I would do it all over again. So have you had any interactions with this coach since this is, since this has all happened? I mean, you got a settlement, hundred thousand dollars. I don't believe it's money that you were after. It was more to make a statement, which I, I believe is one that's powerful and will set a precedent and is a powerful statement to make. But has this coach, has he treated you differently? Have you seen him? Have you interacted with him? What's it been like since all of this has gone down? Yeah, um, like you said, I, I was never after the money. Um, you know, at first it, it, we weren't asking for money um, and it, it did dwindle down to that um, legally and, and um, all that kind of stuff. But it was never about the money. Um, it was always about playing the game that I loved. And, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, he did what he did. Um, and it has essentially paid for my college career. Um, right. And right now I'm in nursing school and uh, $100,000 is a lot of money for a 22 year old. So um, I have not interacted with him. I have not seen him. Um, you know, I, I, I do wish him the best. And I and I hope that this can um, you know, inspire him to, to be better, um, and, and not do this to anybody else while he's coaching or in his lifetime. Yeah. It's always interesting to me, uh, how lopsided this whole situation is when it comes to athletic departments, when it comes to the university system as a whole, if you're on one side of the political narrative, you are celebrated. If you're on the other side, you are punished. And then if you decide to use your first amendment rights to speak out about it and say, this is wrong, then you're really punished. But I think you've done the right thing here, and I think you've sent a message. There have been so many, and I gotta say, so many young women like yourself that have stood up for themselves, whether it comes to boys competing in women's sports or like yourself saying, I have a First Amendment right. I mean, I think it's powerful that young people like you are doing this because I think you would agree a lot of your peers would never have the intestinal fortitude. So in closing, what is your message to others that may not be in your same position, but maybe in a similar one where they feel like they can't say something, they feel like the power is all against them and they should just sit down and shut up? Yeah, I would say uh, just to never sacrifice your beliefs or your morals or your values to conform to the mob mentality. I think it's, it's really easy to do um, and most people do it. But um, like I said, I don't regret what I've done. Um, and I, I would like to think that I have inspired other people, you know, people have reached out to me, whether it be through social media platforms or, or through mutual people, um, expressing just how much this has inspired them. Um, and that, that is something that I wanted to do at the beginning of this. And I'm just glad that I've set that tone, um, for other people to be able to say, Hey, she did that. So I can do that. Um, and that's the goal. And, and I hope I do inspire people in that way. You certainly do, and there are not many like you out there, so keep it up. You have a bright future ahead. 
Thanks for spending time talking to me about this today. And freedom over everything, you always got to stand up for those rights because if we don't, who will? Thanks so much for joining me and best of luck to you and your future endeavors. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Coming up, things aren't looking good for classified Joe Biden, but I have a hunch it's not just we Republicans that have our eyes on this. My final thoughts are next. They may have found classified documents next to Joe's classic Corvette, but it's under the bus they're about to throw their useful puppet. It's time for final thoughts. Joe has been in office nearly two years, and yes, it feels like much longer. But for these last two years, plus the two prior he campaigned from the basement, the mainstream media, along with fellow Democrats, have covered for Joe. All they needed to do was get him over the finish line and into the White House. They successfully installed that man like the increasingly dim light bulb he is, and it worked. The successfully weaponized champeachments, the pandemic, and mass mail-in voting to get their guy elected. And he's been useful for the radical left. He's pushed through major climate change legislation and other Green New Deal policies disguised as infrastructure and inflation reduction. And he's done it all while barely being awake. It's an accomplishment, but not for the right reasons. But it's no secret Joe is sleeping. That whole weekend at Bernie's charade can only work so long. The expiration date on it and Joe himself is coming. And in fact, it may have already come. Enter news of these batches of classified documents found in various Biden nooks and crannies. Even the mainstream media is covering it, and even leftist pundits and his fellow Democrats seemed alarmed at the findings. Or is it feigned shock and alarm? Follow me as we connect the dots in this very political game of Clue. They've known about at least one batch of these documents since early November of last year. They had to keep it quiet so they could keep the heat on Trump's documents and his alleged criminal activity. But now the cat is out of the bag, and it's my sincere belief that not only are Democrats okay with their man going down, but I'd go as far as to say it was Democrats who leaked the news. Why? Because they don't want to be pigeonholed into a feudal life support campaign leading up to 2024. They don't want Biden. These findings of classified documents at Casa, Closet, and Garage a la Biden makes it a lot easier and a lot cleaner for them to move away from Joe. Yes. If you listen closely, hear that? You can hear a man in the Sacramento, California governor's mansion readying his hair gel. You can hear a very disappointing diversity pick greasing up her broom. A man named Chaston picking out decor for the White House holiday display. And if you listen really, really closely, you can even hear a nasty woman somewhere in Chappaqua, New York, steaming a pantsuit. They are sitting on ready. Wait for it. But before we go today, I'd like to wish a very, very happy birthday to Vroom. Well, look, my wife has a rule in her family. When somebody's birthday, sing happy birthday. You ready? Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Alan. Happy birthday to you. Well... Uh, well, those are just my final thoughts uh, from Nashville. God bless and take care.